I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by audible.com. It's summertime, folks, and that means travel season. Do you have a summer trip planned? If you do, your music collection will only get you so far. Audible is the world's largest producer of spoken audio entertainment, and with over 150,000 downloadable audiobooks to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, it's sure to have something to make traffic or flight delays more bearable. So make sure you visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography and sign up for your free 30-day trial and free audiobook download to take with you. Welcome back to American Biography, a proud member of the HistoryPodcasters.com network. This is The Life of John Marshall, Episode 10, Family and Fortune. Now, before I get started, I just want to mention, and I know that some listeners may have already seen me put this up on social media, but do you remember last episode, how I said I was toughing my way through a bad cold? Yeah, well, it turns out it was pneumonia. I'm finally feeling a little better, but I just wanted to mention it, so when you're filling out your ballots for podcasting Iron Man of 2015, you'll remember me, Tom. Thank you in advance. Okay, so last time we talked about John and Polly coming together in the bonds of holy matrimony, and then transitioned to a discussion about slavery. And I promise there was no subliminal message intended when I paired those two topics. Really. This week... I'm hoping to cover a lot of ground and several years in which Marshall received his true education in both politics and law. When John Marshall entered the House of Delegates in 1782, he was entering an institution where time itself seemed to slow down. The heavy influence of the South's plantation culture encouraged a slow, leisurely pace to proceedings which were punctuated by long, erudite deliberations in order to showcase oratorical skills. But the languid pace and relative inertia of Virginia's legislature 
also had a great deal to do with personal rivalries. There were many long-serving members in the House, and in a chivalric culture such as Virginia, pride could be prickly and memories could be long, and both often threw up barriers to effective communication and cooperation. Further, in a general sense, the House was divided into two loosely organized factions that can roughly be thought of as the establishment, who included much of the Tidewater elite, such as Madison, Mason, and many Randolphs and Lees, among others, while an opposition under the leadership of Patrick Henry was a radical party that enjoyed the support of the more bumptious and democratic population of the Piedmont. Marshall's eventual gravitation to the establishment faction was natural, considering it was largely comprised of like-minded proponents of strengthening the Articles of Confederation, which was an issue that would become more serious and divisive in subsequent years, as Henry's followers obstinately opposed any such measures. But when he entered the legislature initially, Marshall found widespread and warm welcome, thanks in part to his ability, in part to his powerful patrons, and in part to his enigmatic character. Marshall was quickly appointed to the Judiciary Committee, as well as a chairmanship of his own select committee. But John never truly seemed happy in the legislature. There was something stifling about it, and he often appeared frustrated by the lack of productivity. The rut the House of Delegates was stuck in was surprisingly well described by George Washington, who's not particularly known for his wit, but nonetheless got off a pretty good shot in a letter he wrote to James Madison. Our assembly has been employed chiefly in rectifying some of the mistakes of the last and committing new ones for emendations at the next. You'll recall from the last episode, a big break that came Marshall's way was when he was voted onto the governor's council. It wouldn't be long until he found himself at the heart of a major constitutional question. A new Kent County magistrate, John Posey, was accused of stealing from the estate of George Washington's deceased stepson while acting as its administrator. In February 1783, ahead of any court decision, Governor Benjamin Harrison received a complaint from New Kent County officials outlining the accusations against Posey, which Harrison turned over to his counsel with a question as to whether the magistrate should be removed as the legislature had empowered the executive branch to do. For Marshall, this raised troubling questions regarding the separation of powers, judicial independence, and constitutional supremacy, which would become some of his favorite hobby horses over the course of the next half century. Now, if it helps to do so, you can break the questions down like this. In order to respond, the governor and the council would first have to determine Posey's guilt or innocence. However, strictly speaking, this was a judicial function. Yes, the legislature may have specifically empowered the executive to do this, but could the legislature move power away from where the Constitution had invested it and place it specifically where the Constitution did not? What would that mean for the future of the state judiciary, vis-a-vis -vis the legislature, if it could be robbed of its prerogative so easily? How could it hope to check the legislature then? And if the executive branch could also wield the judicial power, what would happen if those two branches ever came into conflict? To the surprise and horror of the governor, Marshall and his colleagues declared, The council are of the opinion that the law authorizing the executive to inquire into the conduct of a magistrate is repugnant to the act of government, 
contrary to the fundamental principles of our Constitution and directly opposite the tenor of our laws. Marshall biographer Gene Smith points to this as the first recorded instance in the United States where an act of a legislature was annulled because it conflicted with the Constitution. However, Marshall and the Council didn't actually annul it. They just refused to enforce the law on constitutional grounds, and the legislature chose not to challenge them. Following Marshall's departure from the Council, a differently composed body in 1785 decided that it would very much like to investigate a county magistrate, and did. In fact, the act authorizing them to do so wouldn't be repealed until 1788. All that notwithstanding, the decision, non-binding and narrow in scope as it may have been, was still significant because it gives a clear indication about where Marshall stood at a very early stage on important constitutional issues which he would again wrangle with two decades later on a much bigger stage. As of 1783, Marshall still struggled to get his practice off the ground. Despite his fine connections, the Virginia Bar was a crowded field, packed with many of the finest legal minds on the continent. During the last three months of 1783, he collected a paltry five pounds in fees. But his reputation as an attorney was growing, and one story ably demonstrates this. It goes that an elderly gentleman from the country arrived in Richmond needing a lawyer. Marshall had been recommended, but after observing the unkempt young attorney, the gentleman chose to go with different counsel. While the man sat in the courtroom, waiting for his case to come up on the docket, the elderly man saw the lawyer that he'd hired come up against Marshall. John must have put on a good show, because at the next recess, the elderly man approached Marshall, explained what he'd done and why, and asked Marshall if he'd take his case for just five dollars since he'd given the other lawyer 95 out of the $100 that he'd brought with him that day. Marshall, of course, agreed. In the first three months of 1784, Marshall collected 40 pounds in attorney's fees, a marked improvement. Constitutional historian Edward Corwin expresses frank surprise over Marshall's success in the trial courts, as even by contemporary standards, he received so little preparation. However, Corwin had an explanation for this. So soon after the Revolution, British precedents were naturally rather out of favor, while on the other hand, many of the questions which found their way into the courts were those peculiar to a new country, and so were without applicable precedents for their solution. What was chiefly demanded of an attorney in this situation was a capacity for attention, the ability to analyze an opponent's argument, and a discerning eye for fundamental issues. Competent observers soon made the discovery that young Marshall possessed all of these faculties to a marked degree, and what was just as important, his modesty made recognition by his elders easy and gracious. In the spring of 1784, Marshall faced a professional crossroads. Since the Posey affair, judges were becoming increasingly nervous about hearing cases argued by governor's council members, who potentially possessed the power to remove them. It seemed that he had to choose between remaining on the council and fully pursuing a political career, or leave the council, forfeit the salary, and devote himself to his practice. Before he made up his mind, he sent out feelers to Falkworth County 
to see what his chances were for regaining his old seat in the legislature, which would provide him a small financial safety net and increase social standing, but also leave him free time for legal work before judges he no longer made nervous. The conditions were favorable, and on April 1st, 1784, he resigned from the council. He was elected as representative for Falkwar County just 25 days later, without opposition. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In May of 1784, amazingly just a month before John and Polly's first child, Thomas was born. A family member once again provided Marshall an opportunity. Polly's cousin, John Ambler, who, yes, appears to be the same cousin that secretly cut a lock of Polly's hair and sent it to John when the two had briefly split up, and who had allowed the two to use his country estate for their wedding, and who also happened to be one of the richest men in Virginia who owned many properties throughout the Commonwealth, now hired John to oversee all of his legal affairs. The trust Ambler had shown in Marshall encouraged many others to seek John's representation, and by 1786, John was considered near the top of the Virginia legal establishment, raking in over 1,075 pounds that year. And yes, that's more than the governor made, and it largely remained that way through 1795. This good fortune could hardly have come at a better time, as the years 1783 through 1785 had seen some lean times. Marshall's account books regularly show that his expenses in establishing and maintaining his household exceeded his income. He seems to have gotten by on what would certainly appear to the modern eye as unethical business practices, but which were at the time not uncommon. In 1782, the Kentucky Territory belonged to Virginia, and Thomas Marshall went there to open up the state survey office. Situated as John was in the capital, he would act as a go-between for land-hungry investors and his father. He would receive cash from the interested purchasers, meant to cover his father's survey fees, and essentially use them 
to provide himself interest-free loans by mixing those funds with his own personal accounts until such a time as he could pass it along. Now, it is worth pointing out, again, that attorneys wouldn't be prohibited from this practice in the state of Virginia for almost a century, but still. Anyway, by 1785, things had stabilized and business was steady. In this year, he seems to have felt secure enough that he chose not to seek re-election to the legislature. As Smith says, He spent much of his time on routine matters, such as preparing wills and deeds, or advising clients on possible litigation. He represented creditors trying to collect debts and debtors trying to avoid payment. He defended criminals, war veterans, and members of the gentry, anyone who sought his services. 1785 also saw Marshall transact two real estate deals, which, to no listener's surprise at this point, were boons for John, as the first was between him and his father-in-law, and the other between him and his father, because of course they were. From Jocelyn Ambler, he purchased half an acre in Richmond for ten pounds on paper, though, in reality, it seems that it was a gift. And later that year, Thomas Marshall handed over the 1,700-acre county estate of Oak Hill, which he'd purchased for 920 pounds in 1773, to his eldest son for just five shillings, after he decided to relocate permanently to Kentucky. But despite coming into possession of Oak Hill, John and Polly decided to make Richmond their home. Marshall helped to form the city's first fire brigade, and in July of 1785, Marshall was elected to the city council, within which he was appointed city recorder, a position that required him to act as the magistrate of the Richmond Hustings Court, which heard minor civil and criminal cases, in addition to possessing a slew of other executive and supervisory responsibilities. But amidst all this success, there too was tragedy. On June 15, 1786, Polly gave birth to their second child, Rebecca, who died just five days later. Both parents were of course devastated, but where John began to heal, Polly's grief continued undiminished. Just three months later, in September, Polly, once more pregnant, suffered a miscarriage and then suffered a mental breakdown. The extent of Polly's deterioration is not clear, but Marshall hired a local woman to act as her nurse, and John assumed the oversight and running of his household. Gossip and rumor worked much the same then as it does now. Martha Jefferson, then living in Richmond, wrote to her famous father, Mrs. Marshall, once Miss Ambler, is insane. The loss of two children is thought to have occasioned it. Polly slowly improved, but would never truly be the same again. She would go on to have seven more children, five of whom would survive into adulthood, but as time passed, she would become increasingly frail and reclusive. Polly's illness seems to have only deepened Marshall's love for her, as described in an 1810 letter by his sister-in-law, Eliza, written to a confidant. What his conduct has been in the tender relations of domestic life, you have had as good an opportunity of knowing as myself. 
His exemplary tenderness to our unfortunate sister is without parallel. With a delicacy of frame and feeling that baffles all description, she became early after her marriage a prey to extreme nervous affection, which more or less has embittered her comfort through life. But this has only seemed to increase his care and tenderness, and he is, as you know, as entirely devoted as at the moment of their first being married. And on that note, we're going to leave off for now. But we are rapidly approaching an important milestone in our narrative. The Constitution of 1787 and the fight for ratification in Virginia. That is probably two episodes off, though, as I think next time I'm going to concentrate on trying to tie up some loose ends and set the stage for that drama. And before that episode comes out, it's very likely that a side project I recently took part in is going to go live, and I want to encourage you to check it out. As part of the HistoryPodcasters.com network, I'm going to be featured in a segment in a forthcoming collage show. Several podcasters will be talking about topics of their choice relating to the theme, The End of an Era. I chose to talk about the end of the Jeffersonian Republic and the election of 1824. The show is going to be great, so make sure you head over to the website, historypodcasters.com, and subscribe to the feed, or subscribe to it on iTunes, or however you roll with your podcast. Just make sure you don't miss it. And finally, folks, I have some bad news. After seven years of loyal service, my faithful PC may have finally kicked the bucket. I've had to scrape, beg, and borrow to cobble this episode together, and it was a real beast. But it's probably going to have to continue this way for the foreseeable future. So with that said, please remember that this show is listener-supported. And if you'd like to help, wink wink, nudge nudge, you can do so by visiting www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography and sign up for a free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Or you can visit our website, AmericanBiography.webs.com, and make a secure PayPal donation. And in addition, I'm also trying to work on some ways that can hopefully make donating more fun and easy, if such a thing is possible. But I'll talk about that more when I'm ready to unveil it. But in any case, that's all for now. Just remember you can like American Biography on Facebook, or follow the show on Twitter, at American underscore bio, And you can, of course, email me directly at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so until next time, thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.